Hi, and welcome back to Women in the Word. We are so glad to be with you. I'm Lynn Kitchens, and I am excited to be studying the book of John with you. And you know, I think while we do this book of John, so many questions about Jesus and his teachings will be answered. And I was glad because over the last year, there've been a lot of unanswered questions in our world about so many things. Sometimes I find myself scratching my head about it. Maybe you do too. The other day, my daughter was telling me about her daughter, my six-year-old granddaughter. They were together in a car. And all at once, my granddaughter, Alice, said, Mom, you know, I've been meaning to tell you something. Every night when I go to bed, I really don't go to sleep. I can't get to sleep. I'm scratching my head and scratching my head, wondering about everything, trying to figure it out, and I can't. And here's what I'm asking myself. What is this life? What is life all about? How did I get to be on this earth? What does everything mean? Hey, look, a squirrel. Yeah, that's about as long as a six-year-old can think that deeply. But I thought, hey, oh, incredible questions. These are questions that people have been asking in the world from the very beginning of time. And guess what? The only way to answer that question is with another question. It's the most important and meaningful question in the world. It's a question that Jesus himself asked his disciples. One day they were all on the road to Caesarea Philippi and Jesus turned to the disciples and said, who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street? And the disciples said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're some kind of other prophet. And then Jesus turned and looked in their faces and said, but who do you say that I am? How we answer that question really determines our destiny. It determines our purpose, our fulfillment. It determines where we'll spend eternity. In fact, the answer to that question, who Jesus Christ is to you, determines everything about you. In our passages today, we get to look at people who are just beginning to know Jesus and how they begin to answer that question in his early ministry. And we're going to start with John the Baptist. You know that saying a successful person might say, I was born to do this. Well, John the Baptist was born to share Jesus and his kingdom with the world. And his birth was no ordinary birth. An angel had told John, um, John's father, Zacharias, that his child would be great in the eyes of God. He would be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his birth. And you remember when Mary was pregnant with Jesus and came to visit her relative, Elizabeth, who was pregnant with John the Baptist, when Mary spoke, John the Baptist leaped in his mother's womb. He was already trying to introduce Jesus to the world. Later, according to Jesus and according to the Gospels, John's birth and his occupation was the fulfillment of some Old Testament prophecies. If you have your verse sheet, read Isaiah 40 with me. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for God. 
And Malachi, Jesus himself quoted about John the Baptist. It said, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way for me. Jesus also said something amazing about John the Baptist. He said, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. His birth was surrounded by the divine plans and the purposes of God, and John embraced that calling. And guess what? Your birth was surrounded by the divine purposes and plans of God, and we must always embrace our calling as well. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Look at verse 19 in chapter 1 of John. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now, John would have been about 30 years old at this time, and he began his ministry in the Jordan Valley. And we read in chapter 1, it was God himself who sent John the Baptist to shine a light on the realities of Jesus. And so we know John had to be bold. I think he had to be loud. I think he was focused, and he was definitely unique. He wore camel's hair. He ate honey and locusts. He lived in the wilderness. But still, crowds of contrite people from Jerusalem and from Judea were coming out to him, wanting to be baptized and confessing their sins in the Jordan River. And so John was fulfilling his calling. Hearts were being changed, and the religious leaders didn't like that. He was sort of imposing on them. He was sort of having so much influence that they were losing control. So he sent the Jews out, and when John, um, the author John, meant Jews, he meant any of the leaders in the city, and that would have been the Sanhedrin, and they were supposed to check out anybody who claimed to be a prophet. And so they sent the Pharisees, to John to ask him some questions and to confront him. The Pharisees were very influential. They held tightly to the law. They held tightly to those Jewish oral traditions and traditions that they had passed on that were pretty legalistic. So we can envision this group that the Sanhedrin sent out. They're waiting, they're standing on the shore of the Jordan River waiting for John to come out. When he steps on the shore, they probably encircled him, and they begin to ask him these questions. Now, I want you to notice John wants no attention. He doesn't want any accolades. He wants to put the attention for what he was born for on Jesus Christ. So this was their question. Who in the world are you? You see, these crowds had been growing, and he was teaching with such great power and such great authority that their first question is this, are you the Christ, meaning the Messiah, the anointed one, the one the Old Testament prophets said would help us? Is that you? John replies, I am not the Christ. Probably word had been growing around because John's ministry was so big right now that maybe this was the Messiah. He says no. Next question, well, are you Elijah? 
So we can see why they would ask that because John the Baptist appeared suddenly like Elijah. He was dressed like Elijah. He had power like Elijah. And he even had the same occupation as Elijah, trying to turn hearts back to God. At John the Baptist's birth, an angel had said that John would go before Jesus in the spirit and the power of Elijah. But John was not Elijah in the sense of their questions. And so John says, I am not. And you'll notice John's answers get shorter each time. So then they say, are you the prophet? So in the book of Deuteronomy, um, some people believed it predicted God would send a prophet like Moses in the future. And they misinterpreted that passage, thinking it would be another forerunner to Jesus. But the book of Acts applies that passage to Jesus. And so to this question, John just simply says, no. And they say, then what can you tell us about yourself? Who are you? And so John says this, you know, I'm a godly guy. I got a big ministry going. I'm really important. Why don't you guys get in line? No, he doesn't say that. He would never say that. He says the most humble thing. He doesn't even act like he's a man with a job. He says, I'm a voice. I am a voice in the wilderness described in the Old Testament to make way for the Lord. John is the voice, but Jesus is the word, the revelation and the expression of who God is. And so then they said, well, since you have no official title here, why are you baptizing? What's your authority to do this? They believe that an authority like that would have to come from them. John's authority had come from God. John knew that his work of baptism was temporary, so he tells the Pharisees, you know, someone's coming whose ministry is just beginning, and I am not even fit to untie the laces on his sandals, which this was loosening the ties of your master's sandals was about the lowliest job a servant could do. And John says, I can't even do that. As popular as John was, he was so humble beneath his master, Jesus Christ. You know, later John would say, Jesus must increase. I must decrease. Let's look at John's bold testimony. The very next day, he sent that group home very unsatisfied. But the next day is a great day in his life. He gets to answer the question, who do you say that I am? Look at verse 29 in chapter 1. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself didn't know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness and said, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes 
with the Holy Spirit. I love this passage. I wish I were there for this passage. I wish I was there when it happened. You know, John was probably standing among a crowd of people near the Jordan River. Jesus was coming toward him. At this point, John had already baptized Jesus. And so he knows who he is. And as Jesus gets near, John has the privilege to introduce Jesus to the world. And I bet his heart was beating quickly. He was born to introduce Jesus. And he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, best introduction in the world. In one masterful sentence, John summarized God's entire redemptive plan. The crowd looked up at first, maybe searching for a lamb. Instead, they saw a simple man, but he would die to be their savior. The use of an unblemished lamb for sacrifice was not unheard of. The Jews were very uh, aware of that. It was very familiar to them, but it would have been strange to look at a man and put him in that position. John may have been thinking about a passage that Isaiah had written years before about the Messiah. Look on your verse sheet, Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Announcing that Jesus would atone for the sins of the whole world would have also been pretty confusing to the Jews. They thought, hey, we've got the only religious system that can deal with our sins. Everybody else is lost. I think John's heart was full as he watched his cousin Jesus walk by. If he leaped at Mary's voice years earlier, you know his heart was leaping now because he knew who Jesus was. To the crowd, Jesus was a man. To John the Baptist, Jesus was the Savior of the world. 1 Peter 1 tells us, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without a blemish or spot. When John had said, after me comes someone who ranks before me because he was before me, we learned last week that this means Jesus's public ministry began after John, but he existed before John because Jesus had no beginning of days. He existed from all eternity. We can't really know how much contact John and Jesus had had with each other when they were growing up. They really didn't live very close to each other. So how could John know for sure this is the one God's brought me into the world to introduce? How could John really know that? Because God, we just read, told John what to look for. Look for the one where the Spirit will descend and remain on him during baptism. Mark shows us how that happened in his gospel. Let's read that, Mark 1. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, 
Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. It would look something like this. What an amazing time. What an amazing thing for John to witness. John says, this is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So cleansing by water is one thing, but being baptized by the Spirit of God at the point of your salvation is another thing. When the Spirit like a dove descends to live in you forever, that brings inner and outer change in our lives. John witnessed the Trinity at Jesus' baptism. Jesus is in the water. The Holy Spirit's descending as a dove. The voice of God is coming down from heaven. And because John saw the Trinity, he also cried out one more testimony about Jesus. Look at verse 34 in chapter 1. And John said, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Jesus sustains this unique oneness with God and it testifies of his deity and that's what John saw. Look at John 14 on your verse sheet. We'll kind of listen in on a conversation Jesus had with Philip later on. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and that's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? You know, someone wrote a poem once from John the Baptist's point of view, and I love the last lines of it. This is John the Baptist speaking. When from heaven the visible spirit in the air came and lighted on Jesus alone, then I knew, then I said it, then I saw. God in the voice and glory of a man. That's why Jesus calls him, John calls him the son of God. I also read another quote about Jesus' baptism. This person said, Jesus was always well-pleasing to the Father, but after this wonderful gift of the Spirit at his baptism, Jesus' knowledge of the Father, his sympathy with the Father's purposes, his delight in his Father's will were deeper than ever. It was this anointing that fitted Jesus for the work he was about to do. In other words, the carpenter's door has swung shut for the last time. Jesus is all about doing the work of God now. And it's time for him to choose his disciples and train them so that they could later on change the whole world, which we have also been changed by. Look at verse 35 in John 1. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, John the Baptist, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by again and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. 
So they came and saw where he was staying and stayed with him that day. It was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, hmm, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Okay, we notice here John the Baptist standing with his two disciples. They leave him. John the Baptist is going to be losing disciples. And that was fine with him. That's why he came. So in this story, he's standing with two of them when Jesus is walking by. And I think every time Jesus appeared, John couldn't take his eyes off of him. And as he's looking at him, he says again, it's the Lamb of God. The two men who are standing talking to John the Baptist turn their heads and begin to look in a new direction. They focus their eyes, their attention, and even their allegiance onto this man named Jesus. It's a little confusing when we talk about Jesus' disciples, the exact timeline of when they all became permanent committed disciples. Um, and so that happens sort of on their own different timelines. So this passage may not mean these two men immediately became committed disciples of Jesus, but they wanted to know him. They wanted to find out why John would point him out to them. They wanted to know because of John's testimony. The two disciples here are probably Andrew and John, the author of this book. I like to picture them walking on this dusty path and Jesus is ahead of them and they're kind of staying back a ways and following him from a distance. Finally, Jesus turns around and says, what are you seeking? Their hearts are moved. They want to know where he's staying. They're seeking him. Jesus tells them to come and they will see. I love it. It's an invitation he gives all of us. When we come to Jesus, we are going to really see. Everything in life becomes clear. And this invitation also reminds us when a soul is awakening up to Jesus Christ, it is Jesus who's initiating the relationship with us. It was Jesus who turned and said, come and see who I am. And I love that John records here what time it is. In Roman time, it would have been 10 a.m. This is what that means to me. That time of John and Andrew sitting with Jesus throughout the day was such an incredible time for him, listening to his words, teaching, learning, they loved it so much, and John loved it so much that when he wrote the Gospel of John so many years later, he puts down the exact time that they arrived for this wonderful time with Jesus. And I thought to myself, we can remember some of those special times with Jesus in our lives. I can too. It's always perfect. It's lovely to be where Jesus is, and Andrew and John had a full day of it. Later, Andrew wants to share Christ with his brother, Simon. Jesus looks closely at Simon. That would have been fun to see them meet each other for the first time. He looks closely at this really rough fisherman, and he knows that he is going to transform him. 
and he says, you'll be Cephas. That means Peter in Greek, which means rock. Jesus would transform this rough guy into someone who would help build the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, one day, this man that Peter's just now meeting, he would give his life for and die for him. Andrew introduced Jesus to Peter as the Messiah, in Greek, the Christ. The Messiah was the anointed one. He would come as a prophet and a priest and a king. And I thought, how great to introduce someone to the Messiah. Someone who's lost. And we can say, here's someone who'll be your teacher, your priest, and the king of your life. Let's meet a couple more disciples. Philip and Nathaniel. Let me just tell you about them. At this point, the witness of John the Baptist had spread from Judea all the way into the land of Galilee. You can see that on your map in your notebook. The announcement of John the Baptist had led to followers many, many miles away. So the next day, Jesus is traveling to Galilee. He sees a man named Philip and he calls him to follow him. Probably what that means is Philip had already had a conversation with Andrew and Peter earlier because they all lived in the same town of Bethsaida. The short time Philip was with Jesus convinced him that Jesus was the one Moses and all the prophets wrote about. So he quickly wants his friend Nathaniel to meet Jesus. But his friend Nathaniel was going to have a hard time doing that because he didn't like Nazarenes. He didn't like the town of Nazareth. And he thought, what good thing can come from there? What kind of prophetic person could come from the lowly village of Nazareth? Now, Nathaniel comes, but even before he gets to Jesus, Jesus says, look, here is a wonderful Israelite in whom there is no deceit. I'm sure that very much surprised Nathaniel. So when he reaches Jesus, he says, okay, how do you know me? And I love Jesus saying, before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. Now, the expression under the fig tree sometimes means a time of leisure and rest. Um, and I think lying under a fig tree, that's about what you would be doing. So it could be a literal fig tree here, or it could just be that he caught Nathaniel in some deep meditation and resting in the Lord. Whatever he was thinking about impressed Jesus. He may have been thinking about Jacob in the book of Genesis, an Israelite who did have issues with deceit. And that's why he might have said to Nathaniel, here's someone with an honest heart, a sincere heart someone who has a spiritual heart. Many years earlier in Genesis, the Jews' forefather Jacob had this vision, this dream about a ladder, and there were angels coming up and down the ladder, and it was a vision of God being involved in the affairs of men. And if that is what he was thinking about, Nathaniel, Jesus says, hey, guess what? You're going to see greater things than that. You will witness God being involved in the affairs of men, but not from a ladder of angels. You will see God at work through me, 
through the works that I do on this earth. And Jesus is saying, I'm the ladder between God and man. And Nathaniel, you will get to be a witness to that. I also thought, you know, Philip had just come to realize that Jesus fulfilled what everyone wrote about in the Old Testament. And when Jesus said these things to Nathaniel, and he was placing himself into Jacob's dream, it was another affirmation to Philip. This is the man everybody wrote about in the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. Luke 24, 27 tells us this. This was a time when Jesus said himself after his resurrection that yes, Old Testament was about me. Luke 24, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all of the scriptures, the things concerning himself. When it came time, uh, this Jesus of Nazareth at this point to walk away, I love that Nathaniel cried out, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. As king of Israel, Jesus will one day fulfill all God's plans and purposes for this nation. And so Nathaniel was right. Okay, Jesus began his public ministry now again with something else. He had a private miracle that displayed his glory. And we know the story of Jesus turning the water into wine. The wedding was in Cana. Jesus was invited with his friends, the disciples, and Jesus' mother was there. Jesus brought five disciples with him, the ones we've just met. Now, Jesus' mother, Mary, may not have been invited because it doesn't say so. It just looks like she's helping out. So this could have been relatives of Jesus and Mary that Mary was helping with the wedding. This event was where we get the word parte because... These weddings lasted seven days sometimes. These were great wedding feasts. At this point, the reception's in full swing. There's laughter, there's dancing, there's eating, and there's drinking wine until there was no more wine. That would have been a really humiliating thing for the bride and groom. Now, if this was relatives of Jesus, they wouldn't have been wealthy because Jesus' family wasn't either. And so it makes sense that the wine may have run out. They may have had a low-budget wedding. Mary believes Jesus can help. And she goes to him and says, hey, they're out of wine. Jesus hears her words. She doesn't tell Jesus what to do. She just trusts he'll know what to do. She looks at her son as someone who's very trustworthy. Still, Jesus used this opportunity for his mother to learn an important truth. As his public ministry was now beginning, Jesus would take all his direction from above. So he answers Mary, woman, what does that have to do with me? Why do you involve me? My hour hasn't come yet. Jesus' words were intentionally chosen to reveal his great allegiance to the will of God above the human will, even above people that he has great affection and love for, even above his mother's will. He wants her to know the hour to display God's power was not in her hands. 
Mary turns to the servants instead and says, do whatever he tells you. I love that. She submitted to the will of Jesus while he was submitting to the will of God. And I thought, you know, sometimes we want to force the hands of Jesus to do our will. In those times, it's good to pray, do whatever you will. Do what you will in my life, Lord. Outside, there were six stone jars. They were used for Jewish purification. They would wash their hands. I couldn't imagine this before their meal, between different courses of their meal, after their meal. And each jar would hold 20 to 30 gallons of water. Jesus told the servants, okay, fill these up with water. And the servants filled the water up to the brim, the Bible tells us. And I, I loved that. I thought how deeply the servants obeyed Jesus' words. And I thought when Jesus tells us to do things, if we obey up to the brim, what are some great things that could happen when we obey like that? In the stone jars, a miracle began to happen with that water. That plain water began to turn into the most delicious wine ever created, over probably 150 gallons. And then Jesus told the servants, bring this wine to the master of the feast. And he took a sip and probably had this shocked expression on his face. It was the best wine he'd ever tasted in his whole life. And so he went to the groom and said, wow, everybody else puts out their good wine first. Then as everybody kind of gets dull later on, they bring out the poor wine. And then he said this, but you've kept the best wine until now. And little did that master of the feast know that he was describing Jesus, who was there in his midst. God had kept his best gift to the Jews until now. Jesus is the new wine, bringing joy and an abundant life to all who drink from his cup. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation. All the old has passed away. All the new has come. Jesus came to confront that Jewish legalism, which was set in stone. And he wanted to exchange it with the goodness and the grace of God up to the brim. I think the disciples also tasted this wine. They had to be totally amazed. And the word says, and then they believed in him because they saw Jesus' glory. They tasted Jesus' glory. They recognized his deity. They were witnesses of the creative power of God. Only God could do water into wine. Milton wrote this quote, the conscious water blushed when it saw its maker. Okay, so Jesus' ministry today, this was the early ministry. What does this ministry look like today? And I'm just going to say it looks a lot like his early ministry. He uses us to grow his kingdom on earth. We are the John the Baptist pointing out the realities of Jesus to others. We're also Andrew and John and Philip and Nathaniel and Peter, disciples who've chosen to follow Jesus faithfully. 
So we need to finish our talk by going back to Jesus' question to his disciples. Who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street? Now, if we ask that to people on the street today, we would get answers like, he was a good guy. He's a pal. He's a myth. He helps me when I'm in trouble. He's a nice idea. But remember then Jesus asked his disciples, but who do you say that I am? He asks us that too, but we cannot answer that correctly until we embrace our calling. And here's how we do that. First, we are called to seek him like John and Andrew did. We have to step off our dusty old path, stop standing way behind him, take steps toward him. And when he gazes into our hearts and he asks us, what are you seeking? We search our hearts. Am I seeking money, friends, success? What's the most important thing to me? And when he makes us realize that, we can set that aside and we can say, no, where are you? Where are you staying? I'm, I'm seeking you. That means we turn our allegiance away from the old things that were so important in our life and we put them on Christ. We begin to walk towards the new things, towards the true things. Jeremiah 29 tells us, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Then we're called to come like Nathaniel. Most of us would say, yes, I, I want to follow God, but we don't always realize wanting is not enough. Nathaniel had to come, even though it was hard for him. To come means to make him our priority. To come means commitment and discipline and planning in our lives. And it means leaving those old habits taking on some new spiritual ones. We will not drift into spiritual maturity. We have to purposefully come. Matthew tells us this. Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Finally, we are called to learn. After Nathaniel came, he learned who Jesus really was. We learn that he looks deep into our hearts and he becomes our teacher. Look at Psalm 32. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. So Jesus' disciples were constantly growing because Jesus was constantly teaching and we can be glad he still does that today. We can sit at his feet. Every day we can read his words. Every day his spirit can counsel us, comfort us, grow and guide us. But you know, we need to find a fig tree. You don't necessarily have to plant a fig tree, but you need to find a place where you can do that, where you can learn from Jesus, where you can listen and ponder and meditate, where you can study and you can worship him. And finally, we are called to tell. In case you didn't notice, 
pretty much everything we study today was about telling, telling others who Jesus is. Like John the Baptist, we tell others who are seeking God. Now we read in chapter one where they said about John the Baptist, there was a man sent by God named John. Wouldn't it be great if when people are sharing their testimony later with people and they say, well, there was this woman sent from God named Sue, named Sally. Just put your name in there. Wouldn't that be great? And I know he can do that for us. Christ is the word. We are the voice that carries that word into the deserts of people's lives, a place where we once lived ourselves. Charles Wesley said this, Jesus' only righteousness I show, his saving truth I proclaim, but it's all my business here below to cry, behold the Lamb. So like John the Baptist, we tell seekers. Like Andrew, we tell those in our own family. Like Philip, we tell our friends. Like Mary, who told the wedding servants, we even tell people we may not know very well, but we find ourselves in a place ordained by God to share that news. Telling about Jesus isn't a program. It's about telling people what Jesus means to us and why. Psalm 40 tells us this. I haven't hidden your deliverance within my heart. I've spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I haven't concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. We shouldn't do that either. Okay, Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter answered Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's our answer. And when we know who Jesus is, he uses us to bless the world. Father, we thank you so much for your word that we learn about who you really are. I pray you give us the boldness to share that with others. And I pray you give us the discipline to walk with you every day, wherever you lead us. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.